Hey there, Sinister Seekers. Welcome to another episode of Studio Sinister. We are your host, Farah, and alongside me is my best friend and partner in all things eerie, Courtney. We're here to guide you through the twisted paths of the strange, the unexplained, and the downright sinister. Courtney, how has your day been, my sinister sister? It's been good. I've been excited all day. I will say that I'm running on kind of a second wind. Last night was a full moon, and it was so bright in my bedroom that I could not sleep to save my life. I kept waking up, but I am drinking a caffeinated tea at 5 p.m. on a Wednesday, so that's how my day's going. How are you? I'm doing well, and I agree. Last night, the full moon, even though I have blinds on my windows, the light was coming in so bright, I honestly didn't know it was a full moon, but now I know. It's supposedly the brightest full moon of the year. I found that out yesterday, and I think that kind of psyched me out because legit looked like dusk at 10 p.m. when I went to bed last night, which is unheard of for this time of the year in Montana. Normally, it's like pitch black, even on a full moon. Is there a specific reason for that? I think there is. I forget exactly what causes it, but I think they said it was supposed to be like a longer lunar cycle or something. I don't know. I'm probably butchering that, but if anyone else had trouble sleeping. We will look it up and we'll get back to you on the next episode. But now, on to our segment of what's haunting you. And this time, I get to go first. Hold up, ladies. While you're chasing ghosts, I've got a real haunting dilemma. The other day, my Wi-Fi went out. Can you imagine the horror? No streaming, no only zombies, No online zombie support groups. It was like living in the dark ages. Now that, my friends, haunts me to my undead core. Well, okay, Dawn. I am so sorry to hear about that. Back to my what's haunting me segment for this week. I'm going to play something for you listeners. It's just so interesting, but it goes along with my segment. So I want you to know a little bit of the backstory. All right, so here we go. Colors are the seven spectrums of the one white light. We are hue, man. We are light beings manifested into physical form. Spirit is light. Light is matter and matter is light. They are two vibrational states of the one substance. Genesis 1-3, let there be light. Light was the first thing ever created. John 1-5, God is light. If God is light and everything is created out of light, that means God is everything and everywhere. The torus field is a real atom. This is what creates physical matter. It consists of one white magnetic light splitting into red shift and blue shift. This is why you have a red and blue siren. Red and blue on your tap, red and blue pill on the matrix, and roses are red, violets are blue. We have electromagnetic torus fields which are called auras. The heart is what is casting this field. It is the center, the midpoint. This is why Jesus is always pointing at the heart. The seven vibrational states of light are the seven chakras. We need to balance these chakras and live from the heart, which is the even point. Now, if you want to learn the truth, the things that they don't tell you in school, everything is within this book that I have created. It is called the Book of Wisdom. Okay, that was a reel that I had found on Instagram. I'm trying to figure out what happens in the afterlife and about ghosts and spirits. I always wanted to know 
what are the orbs that they catch on paranormal investigations? A lot of people say that they're dust, although a lot of paranormal investigation shows that I watch, there isn't a speck of dust in the whole room. And then you'll see one crazy shaped orb flying all over the place. Exactly. This reel made me so at peace the way that he had explained it. From what I gathered, we were created in God's light and then we manifested into a physical form. So when we pass on, our physical body is shut down. The essence, our light is still there. Those are orbs, a person that has passed on. That's their essence. That's their light before they had it manifested into physical form. It just makes me at peace that there really is something in the beyond. Tell me your thoughts on that, Courtney. You're definitely on to something. Maybe people will disagree with us, but I feel like this has come up in various different parts of pop culture as well. Like you said, different creators have made note of it too. Maybe they are not explaining it in the same way that we are. But take, for example, over the weekend, it was Christmas this last weekend, and Todd and I binged all of the Harry Potter movies. And they kept alluding to the concept of someone's soul as like a little ball of light. So in the third book, when they perform the kiss on Sirius Black, and they like basically pull his soul out of his body, it's a little orb of light, right? And then in, I don't know if this is how she described it in the books, but in the last movie when they're talking to I think Helena Ravenclaw sorry if I'm butchering that she appears to Harry in a ball of light and then turns into her like non-corporeal form and then again she leaves that scene as a ball of light and I actually thought of you because I'm like that is literally what we were talking about just days ago and as for that Sam and Colby episode guys if y'all haven't seen that video or that series it's groundbreaking but The way that Abigail described what it is she is seeing, she's interacting whoever she's interacting with in the way that she would see them as if they were on her plane of existence. Because, like, why would she see them as a human form? She's going to see them as an orb of light because that's how she perceives her physical reality. Exactly. And if the listeners at home want to investigate this a little bit more on your own, it's called The Revival of Wisdom. He's on Instagram. I don't know if he's anywhere else. I'll leave that all for you to find out, but listen to it. Take what you want out of it. As far as the Sam and Colby episode goes with Abigail, I loved it when they asked her what's one word that you would want to tell millions of people since you have the chance right now. And she said, love. Said love. Right. I just thought that was so amazing. We're just bringing you things that are interesting to us. It's not like we're saying we believe 100% of all things we come across. It's just interesting to open your mind up to something that might haunt you. It's things to haunt you. You have an explanation for it versus just that one piece of the puzzle that you can't figure out. I love when that happens. When you're researching a certain topic or a certain, let's say, sphere of the paranormal, because there's so many. And when you finally find that last little puzzle piece that you can fit in, it's so rewarding because as investigators, that's why we're here. We're not here for money. We're not here for clout on the internet. We're just trying to figure this out because it's something we're passionate about. And at least for me, brings me comfort to know there's something beyond this physical reality. I'm on the same page. So Courtney, what is haunting you 
this week. So this might be a little bit of old news, but a friend of mine texted me earlier today and it's been bugging me ever since. Apparently, the newest season of American Horror Story, which admittedly I'm not a huge fan of the show, but it's apparently based on Rosemary's Baby. Like I said, not a huge fan of the show. I've been I've tried to get into it a few times and every time I do, I just I can't stick with the story. I understand that a lot of people really like it and that's great. It's just not my forte. That said, I've always found the show itself that like the set to be very interesting because supposedly it is an incredibly haunted show. And that obviously makes sense. I think it came to be in the Coven season. They were doing some sort of like ritual that I'm assuming was very accurate to what would have been used back in the days that voodoo and stuff like that were like huge in New Orleans. And they supposedly conjured a spirit onto their set. I don't know the full ins and outs of this just off the top of my head, but from my understanding, they filmed a scene with a ritual in it that conjured a spirit. So in and of itself, that's spooky. But as many of us know, Rosemary's Baby, the film, also is incredibly cursed. There's a lot of strange and inexplicable deaths associated with the movie. Obviously, Sharon Tate and the Manson family are associated with that. And we'll talk about that next episode. But Mm. it's been bothering me because I'm sure they're going to do a great job with it. But you have a haunted TV show and then you have a cursed film and you're combining them. If you have not watched Rosemary's Baby, I recommend that you watch it the first chance that you get. It is one of the best horror movies ever. And I actually have a small clip, just an interview with Mia Farrow. She was the actress that played Rosemary. And I just thought it was a great little clip to share about her time on the set with the director, what she thought of the movie. So here you go. Consciously, but um, I was 21 and it was such a great opportunity. Nobody had any idea that it would be anything more than a horror movie or something. And and in fact, it was received critically as if it was just another horror movie until people realized that Roman Polanski had really created a flawless, flawless horror movie. And of course, at 21, I mean, I had, I had done one movie and actually two and a, and a TV series before that, but nothing as demanding as that film was in every scene for months and months, like from June until late December, every every shot. So I learned, I learned, I went to places I'd never, I'd never gone before. And therefore it was a lesson in going where you had to go emotionally. It was pretty demanding. So in, in that sense, I, I, I learned a lot from it. I mean, he was a wonderful director to work for. I don't like to talk about his personal life. Enough people can do that. But as a director, he was brilliant, and he was engaged to the beautiful Sharon Tate, and that was all I knew then. And I, it, it was a dream to work for him, because even though he, he at the time spoke little English, he was a wonderful actor, and he would act the scenes to John Cassavetti's irritation. He would act the scene, and then you knew exactly what he wanted. It, it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful experience. I don't want to see any harm to come to these people or anybody who's working on the show, but when she texted me that today, I was floored that they would combine two very spooky topics. So what are your thoughts on that? I will have to say, <coughs> uh, Don, are you okay there? 
Oh, hey, hey, I got some interesting info to share. Papa Legba, the voodoo maestro of the afterlife. Let me enlighten you, my spooky comrades. Papa Legba, the gatekeeper extraordinaire, the guardian of the Poto Mitan, which is basically the center of support and power in the home. It's like the epicenter of supernatural real estate, and Papa Legba is the landlord you better not mess with. He's the one who keeps the spirit realms for rent signs in check. Now here's the kicker. Papa Legba and I used to be tight, like, share a brain tight. We'd chat about the best brain recipes, share gardening tips. He borrowed my lawnmower once, never returned it, typical. But then one day, he started ghosting my calls. Maybe he found a new undead BFF. Who knows? He's like the landlord who evicts you from the ghostly penthouse without notice. Back to the dark tales of New Orleans. Imagine a city where spirits throw better parties than the living, and voodoo rituals are practically a Tuesday night routine. Papa Legba, the guardian of the Poto Mitan, the keeper of spectral real estate, allowing for communication between humans and the spirit world. In voodoo practices, spirits of the dead are unable to inhabit one's body unless permitted by Papa Legba. It's like having the ultimate bouncer at the afterlife club. Stay wicked, my friends, and remember, Always keep tabs on your supernatural landscaping equipment. Wow, Don, you know a lot about voodoo. Oh, you know, I get around. Anyway, don't ask Papa Legba for a loan. His interest rates are otherworldly. <laughs> we won't, Don. Thanks for the tip. But you were asking me my thoughts. I have watched the newest season of American Horror Story, and I liked it. A lot of people do not like it, and everyone is entitled to their opinion but it definitely had a Rosemary's Baby feel to it. When I watched Coven, I really like the two writers and directors on the show, Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk. They aimed to bring an essence of reality to the show. So when they did the story, The Coven, it was stationed in New Orleans and around voodoo witchcraft because that's what that area is based on. It's almost like I can envision them for legitimate purposes because you don't want to present something that's phony or silly and then you have people criticizing it. At least you try to make it look authentic if you're going to produce this kind of show. So I'm pretty sure they consulted someone and that's awesome. But like you said, it conjured something. Maybe their intent wasn't to per se, hey, let's do this to go and bring a devil in here, but their intent was still to cast a spell and make it look real. The words they said were real. And you don't know what everyone's thinking in their subconscious mind. They might be like, oh, wow, this is cool. I really hope it conjures something. So you don't know. Right. I think that the intention behind it was to make it look as realistic as possible. Obviously, I don't think they were intending to conjure anything onto the set, but when that is your intention to make it look believable, that is just enough of an invitation to crack the door open and bring something in that you never meant to bring in. We talked about it last week when we were speaking about the Bell Witch. I just barely cracked open that door and it's been, what, years now of all of this nonsense. So I'm almost wondering if maybe it was so realistic that it did, in fact, bring something in that they weren't trying to bring in and then to couple that with rosemary's baby is just like wild to me but i guess we'll see how it goes was it any good it was great that actress mia farrow i think she was great for the part and this is like a i think the movie was in 69 if i'm not mistaken no 68 and then 69 you had the manson family murders and 
it was a dark time in the industry too. Sharon Tate was gone and they all knew each other and were on set. So it's, it's definitely a classic though. Yeah, it's a great film. While we're on the topic of great classic horror films, I highly suggest watching A Clockwork Orange and The Exorcist. Those are all in the same little category as Rosemary's Baby. The directors wanted to bring something new to the table, edgy. Yeah, that's my little two cents in there on your what's haunting you story. It's bugging me, man. We're gonna. I guess we'll see what happens in the coming. Uh, hopefully, nothing happens. But right, and I'm like the logical side of me is like, of course, nothing will. But I just thought of something. We need to look up what year Coven came out because the one blonde actress, Billy Lord, is in American Horror Story. Her mother is Carrie Fisher, who played Princess Leia in all the Star Wars movies, had died on a flight back from somewhere. And then in a day or two, Carrie Fisher's mother, meaning Billy Lord's grandmother, then died too. Debbie Reynolds is Billy Lord's grandmother. She was a famous actress in the 50s. She starred in Tons of movies when movies were song and dance. She was a great dancer, great actress. But we might want to check on that to see if those deaths match the dates of the Coven filming. We'll have to do a bit more digging. But while you were explaining that, I looked it up and the season aired from October 9th, 2013 to January 29th, 2014. It consisted of 13 episodes. So that timeline doesn't sound exactly right because I want to say I was in college at the very least when Carrie Fisher died. But um, what were those dates again? It was October 9th, 2013 to January 29th, 2014. Okay. Carrie Fisher died December 27th, 2016. Well, we all know that curses can stay around. I just found it odd that when Carrie Fisher passed, her mom passed on just a few days later. But then again, if you want to look at it as more in a in a loving way that her mother just couldn't stand to be on earth without her daughter there. They obviously filmed like the entirety of Rosemary's Baby. It was released. It was a sensation. And years down the line, people were passing away in mysterious circumstances. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense of, in the sense that they were murdered, of course, but in other ways as well. Yeah, that to me doesn't refute the idea as long as it came after. To me, that's chilling and lends some credence to the idea. I'd like to see if there were any other weird events that transpired after the fact or if any do come up in the coming years. That would be interesting to see. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But that does remind me, you and I are doing an episode on haunted sets. Courtney, you're covering... The Omen movie, and I'm covering the Exorcist movie. I can't wait to get into all the research with that. But anyway, let's get to our episode for today. Ooh. We're setting our sights on a creature that's as mysterious as it is monstrous. Nestled in the heart of Big Sky Country amidst the majestic Rocky Mountains and beneath the crystal clear waters of Montana's largest freshwater lake lurks a creature that has been stirring up waves of intrigue for centuries. Yes, folks, we're talking about none other than Montana's very own Flathead Lake Monster. And keep in mind, this is the state that Courtney lives in. So now you might be thinking another lake monster. Isn't that a bit 
cliche, but dear listeners, let me assure you, there's nothing cliche about this aquatic enigma. The Flathead Lake Monster is no Loch Ness wannabe. It's a legend in its own right. First reported by the Salish people, this serpentine beast is said to be anywhere from 20 to 40 feet long with a body resembling a gigantic eel. It's been spotted over 109 times since the 1800s. The Salish folks are a group of people mainly chilling in the Pacific Northwest of North America. We're talking about tribes like Coast Salish, Interior Salish. They've got this deep-rooted history tied to the land and waters. Picture them as the OGs of the fishing and hunting and gathering for grub. Their gig involves extended family vibes and their art game is on point. Carvings, weavings, you name it. But here's the scoop. Salish is like this umbrella term for a bunch of related crews, each with its own flavor of culture and talk. They've got turf in Canada, otherwise known as British Columbia, and the US, Washington, Oregon, Montana. Now, it hasn't been all sunshine and rainbows, colonization threw some curveballs their way. Yet many Salish people out there were hustling to keep their traditions alive. But here's where things get really interesting. Unlike many other lake monsters around the world who are content to simply swim around scaring fishermen and occasionally posing for blurry photographs, our flathead friend has been known to display some rather sporty tendencies. That's right, this monster has been reported to leap out of the water like an oversized salmon. Talking about making a splash, so Monsters in Montana, diving into the Flathead Lake Monster starts now. Nationwide crime is dominating the headlines here in America. Uh, my teeth. Oh, my teeth are good. Someone was murdered, I think. Where? I was the CPA. 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 I was the And we are back, Sinister Seekers. So this is the story that Courtney is covering this week. I am just waiting in anticipation. So Courtney, take it away. Dude, I'm just so excited that we're in Montana. This is my favorite place. And then Flathead Lake is also like the pinnacle of Montana living. I just think it's a beautiful place. So if you're in the area, definitely check it out. But I should mention that Flathead is idyllic for vacations, boating, fishing, and the like. A lot of families go there, myself included. My husband and I visit the area at least once a year, if not more often than that. But according to one local legend, the Flathead Lake is, of course, far more than that. Allegedly, there is a beast of sorts that lurks through the waters below, affectionately known as Flossie by locals. Stories of this elusive creature date back for over a hundred years, making this one of the most documented cases of cryptozoology in all of Montana's history. 
And bear in mind, guys, we have a history of Sasquatch Bigfoot stuff out here, and this dates back even further. So before we get into Flossie itself, I would like to just talk about the lake because, like I said, it's one of my favorite places of all time. First and foremost, it's worth mentioning that this is a massive lake. It's a glacial lake that's fed by the waters of Flathead River. It spans across approximately 197 square miles, and it's the largest freshwater lake that's west of the Mississippi River. So it's huge. But when you drive by this lake, you basically have to cross it no matter which way you go if you want to go to Glacier National Park, which is also one of the coolest places that I've ever been. But that's aside the point. When you're driving along this lake, it's like you're driving on the bay of an ocean. Like you can see land throughout the entire time, but it's so massive that it takes you like hours to get all the way through. It's that big. It's it's a really cool place, but suffice it to say, it makes sense that there's supposedly something lurking in the water. Now, it's also worth mentioning that this lake is incredibly old. In fact, it was formed by remnants of glacial Lake Missoula, placing its origins back 15,000 years. So it's like you were saying earlier in the introduction, this story dates back further than a lot of us can really comprehend. The people who were living on this lake were some of, not some of, the very first people to ever live in the area. So if they're saying that there is a lake monster in Flathead Lake, then there has to be at least a bit of credibility to those claims. Hold up, Courtney. We're talking about the Flathead Lake monster. Huh. Sounds like my kind of party crasher. Rumor has it, it's got better hiding skills than my ex's sense of commitment. Now here's some cryptid comedy for you. What do you get when you cross the Flathead Lake monster with a stand-up comedian? A splash of dark humor. Ha 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 ha. Peace out for now. Now, beyond that, Flathead is also a pretty important resource for water throughout Flathead County. It generates hydroelectric power to various towns along the lake itself. It's worth mentioning, like I said, this is a huge lake. So there are a ton, not a ton, probably about a dozen or so little hamlets throughout, like just scattered along the shores. And the lake itself provides power to those little towns. The power is courtesy of the SKQ Dam, which is situated along Flathead River just south of Kalispell, which also gets power from the lake. So all in all, it makes sense that not only is this a place of great importance to the community, but given its history and notoriety, of course, there has to be something lurking there, which is probably the coolest cryptid that I've ever come across. Now that we understand the history of Lake Flathead, can I get your thoughts on the place itself? Well, when it comes to the general area of Flathead Lake, I'm fascinated by the mystique surrounding it. It's just, it's an ancient area. It has that unexplained phenomenon going on with it. It has that aura of high strangeness to it that adds that extra layer of intrigue for me. And then as we get into the Flathead Lake Monster, we can see that there is a lot of documented eyewitness accounts. It's such an expansive territory that you have to consider the possibility of an unknown species. I find myself drawn to gain a broader understanding of cryptozoology, but to shed more light on this creature, I'll share an audio clip later of an eyewitness account that really left its mark on me so much that I've got goosebumps right now just thinking about it. But 
The idea of such a creature in a place as ordinary as a lake, it's surreal, isn't it? You know me, Courtney. I'm all about your area over there and how your land is haunted. And I think there's a supernatural aspect to it. It's worth mentioning, too, that the whole just this whole area of the state is known for supernatural, for lack of better phrasing, history. I don't know how else to say that. That's where Thunderbirds, quote unquote, would supposedly live if they were in Montana. Then they say, too, that Glacier National Park, which really isn't all that far from this, is supposed to be very haunted. There's unfortunately been a lot of deaths that have occurred on going to the Sun Road, and they believe that spirits of those who've lost their lives there still remain. And on top of that, there is that vortex, which, again, is not very far away from this. It's in Columbia Falls, so maybe a 20 or so minute drive. And all of that, to me, it just seems like this whole area kind of forms this bubble of bizarre activity. And on top of that, we have spoken about at least somewhere on the Internet. I couldn't tell you where at this point in time, but water in and of itself is supposedly going to bring on paranormal activity. Do I think that this creature is paranormal per se? No. Do I think that it's possible that something of this nature is dwelling in the lake? Of course I do. Like that, after researching everything, is clear to me it's more of just a matter of what it is, not if it's there. Add something to the area. Yeah. You said there's a lot of supernatural occurrences and happenings Mm -hmm. there. The rock itself could be a possible conduit. We should see what kind of rocks are around that lake. I'm not a geologist, but I believe that there are certain types of rocks, even crystals, that can give off a type of energy. And I wonder if that's contributing to the supernatural causes out there. We have a lot of agate out here. I was, I think the word I'm thinking of, is it a G word? Geode? Maybe. I'll have to look it up. I don't know. Okay. I think there might be granite. And of course, we're not geologist. And I think quartz is able to make an electrical charge, but I think under certain conditions, but I'll have to look that up. I think that with the age in and of itself, I will be very frank with you guys. I thought this was a man-made lake, mainly because of the dam. I've been to the dam several times and it just seemed to me that this was a man-made facility. And then when I was doing my research, my husband was saying that It was 100% a natural lake and that I was wrong. So I looked it up and I ate my words because I was like, oh, okay, this is a very old lake. And that, again, it gave some credibility to the idea that something, I don't want to say otherworldly, but just different is dwelling there. I hate to butt in Goldilocks, but you may want to use that word, otherworldly. There's a bud that goes by R. Warren on YouTube who claims to have caught a UFO show over Flathead Lake. Now, I've seen it. It's like a cosmic light show up there changing colors and shapes faster than a ghost, changing outfits for Halloween. I've got to say, if I were an alien, I'd probably swing by for a lakeside vacation too. Check out the link we'll drop in our show notes. It's almost as mind-boggling as trying to teach a zombie to dance. Sorry, Courtney. Just wanted to share that tidbit. Please continue about the lake. And it's massive and it's pretty deep as far as lakes go. So I want to say that it's deeper than a lot of the parts of, I think, the Red Sea. Don't quote me on that. It's deeper than some sort of Mediterranean Sea or something like that. I can't remember. But it's worth mentioning that not only is it very old, it's also fairly deep and anything could be lurking there. I did just want to remind you guys that the Flathead Lake monster is said to be a giant serpent that's been lurking below the surface of the lake for, again, over 100 years. 
Flossie is somewhere between 20 and 40 feet, and it's supposed to have steel black eyes, which to me is just like eerie. It's giving Basilisk from Harry Potter, not to keep bringing that up, but obviously it's fresh on the mind. The first sighting dates back to 1889, when Captain James C. Kerr claimed to have encountered a monster while aboard his steamboat, the U.S. Grant. Now, even from this very first sighting, Flossie was literally making waves. James C. Kerr wasn't the only one who spotted the Flathead Lake monster aboard his steamboat with him. There were a hundred passengers, and they all claimed to have seen the monster swimming next to them aside the steamboat. What are your thoughts on that? So let's consider this. When it comes to cryptids or UFO sightings, if it's just one or two individuals claiming to have seen something, it's easy to be skeptical. However, when the witness count rises to a hundred, that's when we must push our skepticism aside and take a closer look. Imagine a captain and an entire crew of a steamboat, sharp-eyed sailors. Picture them attesting to the sighting of the cryptid in Flathead Lake. How can a hundred and one people aboard a steamboat, no less, all be deluded, blind, or inebriated. It simply gives the sighting a certain degree of credibility that's hard to ignore. I mean, as for me, I'm completely won over by this compelling evidence. What about you? That to me also took me aback because you guys know this, but I am not by any means a believer in cryptozoology. I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. I do think that there's a possibility that like an animal of some nature is living out in the world that we've never encountered before. That's obviously very possible. It's just the supernatural element of it is hard for me to wrap my head around. That said, I did think that was interesting because as we said earlier, a lot of the times when you come across these monsters, they're in blurry photographs. And to have somebody say, not only did I see it, but a hundred other people saw it too. It just goes to show that there's something lurking in the Flathead Lake. So I will say, since that initial sighting in 1889, there's been 115 documented sightings. So the majority of which were recorded by cryptozoologist Lanny Hansel, who unfortunately has passed away. So I'm not sure how much more research we are going to get on the subject. But he did work on the lake for about 30 years before he passed in 2022. This is where things to me get a little bit hard for me. Like I said, he never once had an interaction with the Flathead Lake monster. He worked on the lake every day. And for the most part, he was hunting the beast and he never came in contact with it. As a skeptic, that for me is hard to swallow because in my mind, if you're spending so much time searching for this monster that is supposedly pretty easy to come across, I feel like he had ample opportunity to encounter it. Maybe it's more intelligent than we think, but I did want to get your thoughts on that. I told you there was going to be light debating. Okay, I will say a creature's not going to perform for you. The lake is very vast. That specific day, that specific time, that specific location, it's not there. Doesn't mean that it does not exist. It could be so intelligent as to hear boats. And there could possibly be an underground cavern that it can go to. Cavern? Might be frightened. Exactly. It could go into a cavern when it's frightened to be off the radar. Something happened during mm -hmm. the age of the dinosaur that maybe made that lake over a right. span of time. To me, it's just like Bigfoot. 
you can go out and you can plan a Bigfoot hunt, get all of your gear ready, all of your cameras, camp out for a week and maybe not see anything. But then you go for a walk one day and you get something. It's It's always when you least expect it. Right. It's common for people to be fascinated by cryptid creatures like the Loch Ness Monster, but it's important to approach these mysteries with a critical eye. For instance, pictures have surfaced appearing to show Loch Ness creature, but many of them have been debunked as elaborate hoaxes. I mean, like the infamous rubber ducky replica that caused such a stir. Naturally, this has made me somewhat skeptical of Nessie. However, skepticism doesn't invalidate the possibility of undiscovered species residing deep beneath the surface of Loch Ness. Just because there have been fake sightings doesn't negate the chance of there being something genuine out there. I must admit, even though I've watched many documentaries and have seen numerous faked monster sightings, I'm still drawn to the lore and the mystery of such cryptid creatures. Until we've finished exploring every inch of Loch Ness, the question will remain, what truly lies beneath those murky waters? And we'll touch on that aspect towards the end of the show. I'm going to discuss theories because, again, I'm skeptical, but I do think that there is something in Flathead Lake. I'm with you there on the Loch Ness Monster. I can't wrap my head around that one, but I'm just about to get into the sightings of it before we talk about theories. So if you want to go ahead and cue that up, I'm interested to see what it is. Mm -hmm. Mine are just stories that I've collected from around the internet. Farah has an actual audio clip from somebody who has encountered this monster. This is a gentleman named Jim Manley and his wife. They were in an area called Polson, and I think it's spelled like P-O-L-S-O-N, something like that, Mm -hmm. around the Flathead Lake area. This was on a show called Monsters and Mysteries that you can find on YouTube. I happened to come across it, and I just thought it was a great encounter to share with you guys, especially to get Courtney's reaction to it. I'm queuing this up for you right now. an attorney. I've been a country lawyer in this little town of Polson for 33 years, which is on Flathead Lake. I'd heard there had been sightings, but I didn't really pay any attention to it. I think I was a skeptic, although there wasn't really any explanation, too, for some of the sightings. So I didn't know. That skepticism would be tested one summer afternoon out on the lake. After work, we were out there. It was a calm day. Uh, There was a light breeze, but no waves. It was a beautiful day, and there there were no other boats on the whole bay. We tried to start the boat up, and the battery was dead. It's a helpless feeling being out in the middle of the water like that. We called my daughter, who she and her her husband had a boat. While we were waiting for them to come to rescue us, we were just laying on the boat, kind of relaxing, and there were no other boats out there. There were no people there, but we heard slapping on the water, loud slapping. 
Not like someone diving in, but something heavy slapping the water. It was like, like that. And it was close enough that I could tell it was close. We froze and we just stared and watched. Look at it. The first feeling I had seeing it was just shock. I knew I was seeing it, but it's so unbelievable to think about it. As we're watching, this thing starts moving. And, and it was moving super slow, and we could see humps out of the water. It was like a serpent, didn't see a head, just the body. What we saw was probably as long as our boat, which was 24 feet, and that's kind of freaky. That, that you have something out there that might be twice as big as your boat swimming below you. Beyond it, here came our daughter. She and her husband, they're coming directly toward us in their boat. And I was going like this, trying to get them to look at it, and they thought I was waving, and they were, they were just waving like this. And as they came on toward it, it just slowly slipped back, slipped down in the water and disappeared. Jim and his wife were both on the boat. I loved how they described the conditions. There mm -hmm. wasn't any wind. They're making no waves. It was calm area on the lake. And then her wording of it looked like a serpent. It was mm -hmm. 24 feet long. What else could that be? On a lake, there's not going to be a 24-foot catfish. Because if that was the case then you would have everyone and their mother going out to Flathead Lake and you would be seeing pictures of people catching these huge catfish and being in the Guinness Book of World Records holding up their catches. So then what is it? I don't believe there's sturgeon in that area, which that's a fish that usually does get misidentified for something else creepy because of the skeletal form that it has on its back because it's like an ancient fish. So it's protective covering pretty much. It's like an armor. But what do you think about that? I will say two things. Number one, with the sturgeon. There are sturgeon in Flathead Lake. And that was the theory I was going to bring up. We'll touch on that more in a little bit. But I appreciate that you brought that up because there's a part of me that's this makes total sense. But the size doesn't right. line up. They're usually around 12 or so. Feet. They're we'll big. We'll talk about it a little bit later. They're huge, but they're not 40 feet. Right. Some can be. Like I said, we'll talk about it. The other thing that I wanted to mention was, I don't know about in this lake. I'm sure there probably are. But let's go back to Lake Lanier, which we've both discussed independently of one another. And we both find that entire location very fascinating. That lake is microscopic in comparison to Lake Flathead. And they have massive catfish like i'm talking the size of vw like vans in lake lanier so it is possible for fish to get that big but i don't think there are any of that size or maybe there are not any i didn't look it up to be honest but in flathead lake at all i'm more if it's a fish i'm leaning towards sturgeon but yeah it's interesting but what gets me about their interaction is the fact that kind of like we were saying earlier Maybe it's fearful. It can hear like boats approaching. They were sitting with a dead motor like they could not or make noise of that nature if they wanted to, which they obviously did. The other thing that's worth mentioning, too, is the fact that Poulsen Bay is, from my understanding, 
pretty crowded. Polson is a pretty decent sized little town and that's where you go when you're on the lake if you're coming from Polson. So the fact that there weren't any other people there, which depending on the time of year is 1000% possible, it makes sense to me that they would see it when their boat is turned off, when they're anchored, when they're just sitting there basically idly. When we looked at the video, it looked as if it was getting dark, like dusk. Oh, so maybe it was like, not on them, but maybe it was like looking for, like looking to feed. But it's the fact that their daughter was approaching and that's when it decided to take its leave, essentially. It almost makes you wonder if maybe it is fearful of like engines and motors and stuff like that. I thought that was interesting. That's really cool. And we also have to remember catfish don't have humps, have that dorsal fin that's pointy. But picture this, out in the ocean, there's this huge fish with these crazy fins. I mean, back in the day, way back in the 17th and 18th centuries, when people didn't really get out much, can you imagine how people might flip out and think they've just seen some sea monster? Like if it was a big catfish or sturgeon. But that's not what this story is about. This is about the Flathead Lake Monster in Montana. And people have described seeing this thing in the lake. Some have said it has a head like a snake, which is pretty wild. But there's something real about their stories. They didn't overdo it. They're not running around screaming about monsters. It was more of a, what the heck did we just see kind of thing. That lake, it's big and deep. You can't say that there's definitely nothing odd living down there unless you've looked over every inch of that place. So we've got these stories and you've got to count them for something. Some of the folks telling them like this couple in their 50s or 60s, do you really think that they're these sort of people to make stuff up? The truth is something that you have to go out and see for yourself, I guess. But personally, I think there's something strange happening at Flathead Lake. What you were going off of, just they say that there's, it's got to be a fish, blah, blah, blah. Sure, it might be. But who's to say that isn't something like, again, this lake is 15,000 years old. There is very likely something in there that has just not been discovered in terms of a species that we are just interpreting as being a sea serpent, a lake monster. And that's fine. To me, that makes total sense. Yeah, just in my mind, like you said, it's coming from a skeptic's perspective. When will it be enough? Like, when is the evidence that's coming? head here going to be enough. But even if you look at it from a logical perspective, to me, it makes sense that there's something in this lake that is old and maybe undiscovered, or maybe it's just a very older version, unevolved version. I don't know if that makes sense, but of something that we do know about. So docile, which is a good thing. Yeah, it seems, I don't want to say friendly, but people do have a love for the Flathead Lake Monster. Like I said, they call it Flossie, and that's a very endearing name. Hold up, Courtney. Did I hear you say Flossie? Ha <laughs> Oh my God. Sounds like a nickname for a plus-sized thong. Where is it? Where did it go? I can't see it. Oh my gosh, Dawn. Um, sorry about that. Moving on. So let's go ahead and talk about a few more sightings that I came across, right? In 1900, Joseph Zelaney was spearfishing in the shallows of Polson Bay on Flathead Lake when they noticed what they thought to be a log floating on the surface. He was with a couple of friends that day, and I believe they were fishing for sturgeon. The more they looked at this, the more they thought that maybe it wasn't a log. It seemed to be animated. 
And for whatever reason, they decided to throw one of their spears at whatever this thing may be. As they did, the what they described as a 10 to 12 foot long serpent shot out of the lake, quote, a gun or like a shot out of a bullet, end quote. Any had always theorized that this was a large sturgeon. Like I said, that's what they were fishing that day. Although his son, Bill, who recounted the story in an interview back in the 1950s, the serpent that his father had encountered, in his opinion, had been a young flossy. So maybe it's, to me, that's hard for me, again, to wrap my head around because, like I said, 100 people had seen something that was like 40 feet long, not 50 years prior. So maybe it was this creature had babies and this was one of its offspring. That's something to think about. But I do think this may also have been a sturgeon that he was just hoping could have been the flathead lake monster. But either way, I thought that one was interesting. Then in 1953, Mrs. Robert Olson was on the beach with her four sons near the mouth of Flathead River at Big Fork, which is another town on Lake Flathead. She said that she was sitting on a log looking out on the lake when she saw what she described as this big, huge thing, which was a quote. In an interview with Daily Interlake, Olson stated that the thing she was looking at had been the size of a boat, which kind of comes up in the audio clip that you showed with us earlier. People are describing it to be the size of boats, which to me doesn't sound like a sturgeon, but they can get big. We'll talk about that, like I said. Now, from her vantage point, like I said, she thought it was a boat, but that didn't really make sense because it had just appeared out of nowhere in full view. And then just moments later, she watched in disbelief as it once again submerged. So it surfaced hung out there for a moment, and then went back down below. So it couldn't have been a boat. It had to have been some sort of large aquatic creature. Then one of the more recent sightings was actually a report from three-year-old Andrew Johnson. This was back in 2017 when he and his mother, Cindy, were staying at their lake house in Polson. Now, I don't fully understand the details of what happened, but at some point, Cindy had lost track of Andrew. They got separated and she eventually was able to track him down on the shoreline at, I wanna say it's like Polson Beach or something like that. He was soaking wet and being that he was three years old, Andrew wasn't the strongest swimmer. So you can imagine how terrified Cindy was to find her kid in that state. And I think he was relatively calm, whereas she was freaking out. And that said, Andrew was quick to reassure her, stating, quote, the Flathead Lake monster lifted me up. That is chilling to me because I don't think a three-year-old would make that up. Thoughts? Oh my God, I, I have goosebumps right now. I mean, some people might chalk it up to it's just a kid's wild imagination, but honestly, the way you just told it, it, it feels like it was something more. And I'm a mom, so I know when my kids were, when it was something imaginary or it was something they were telling the truth about. But we're talking about a really scared mom and her little boy who lived through something that's hard for me to even imagine as much as I'm into the paranormal and cryptozoology. It just gives me chills. That's yeah. scary. It freaked me out. It freaked me out when I came across that. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is I don't know why, obviously, Andrew told Cindy what he saw. I don't think that Cindy is going to go around being like, oh, I lost track of my son. <laughs> unless she genuinely <laughs> believed that he was saved 
from possibly drowning by the Flathead Lake monster. Because from Andrew's perspective, he had fallen into the lake or waded too far out into the shallows. And it was the serpent that saved him, which is chilling to me. And I'll just throw in there that especially in this day and age, you do not want to be a mother that doesn't have her eye on her child for a certain period of time, especially in front of people like at the beach. I don't think that she had done that. She's not a bad mom. It was a day at the lake, like any other time that they probably went there. Thank goodness he's okay. But the outcome that a cryptid could have possibly saved this child's life. This cryptid isn't like a monster type. On the contrary, I think it's very laid back. It's just doing its thing and moseying around and Flathead Lake. And it seems it's at least somewhat intelligent, which kind of brings me to the theories aspect of it. Like I said, as we've been talking about throughout the entirety of this episode, it seems as though it is possible that this is a sturgeon, right? So to give clarity here, sturgeons are a type of fish like salmon where they are saltwater throughout the majority of their life, for the most part, and then they will travel upstream into fresh water to spawn. The majority, like I said, do live in the ocean at least part-time, but there are some freshwater varieties that spend their entire lives in lakes and rivers. I was not able to determine if the Flathead Lake was one of the locations where they live full-time, but there are sturgeon in this lake, which kind of gives some credibility to Zelani's theory from 1900 that they were fishing for sturgeon and he lost one that was 12 feet. But to our point, as we said earlier, that does that description does not align with what they say the Flathead Lake monster is. We're talking 20, 40 feet. So I can be skeptical of theories as well, especially ones that are trying to make sense of something with pure logic, which I try to look at everything objectively. I don't want to say flat out I don't believe in any cryptids. It's just I haven't found one that really freaks me out. But just to give, again, a bit of credibility to this claim, there are 25 different species of sturgeon worldwide. Most of them are between 7 to 12 feet. However, the largest sturgeon on record was a whopping 23 feet and 7 inches. It's possible for them to get this big, but that would be a record-breaking sturgeon if it was 40 feet long. So to me, while I do think this is a good theory, if you're skeptical like I am, it's not 100% doing it for me, especially considering that this is a creature that has come up in a lot of different Native American lore, as we spoke about at the beginning of the episode. So I'm going to butcher this, and I do apologize, but there have been some notes of an aquatic sea serpent in Flathead Lake or a lake monster-like activity throughout the Kootenai tribe, I believe. They have a lot of different lore on a lake monster in Flathead Lake and sea serpents and stuff like that. And they were in the area before that first sighting in 1889. So who's to say that their inspiration for this lore didn't come from the Flathead Lake monster and they didn't document it in the same way that Captain Kerr did? To me, it does make a little bit more sense, I'm not going to lie to you, because these people have been there for hundreds of years versus one guy who worked on the lake for about 50 years or however long he worked there. So that is my 
rendition of the Flathead Lake Monster. But I wanted to get your thoughts on the theories. Do you think that it's Native American lore of some kind? Or do you think it's more a fish that hasn't really been discovered yet? So let's consider this creature of Flathead Lake. Okay. Could it be an entity from Native American folklore like a skinwalker or the hairy man or something else? The Native American tribes, such as the Salish that I talked about earlier, which when I looked it up, they're also known as the Plateau Indians, but they've been here for generations and they've witnessed it all. Native Americans are known for their petroglyphs, their form of storytelling, which includes representations of being like the hairy man and the Thunderbird skinwalker, their accounts carry weight to me. I think because of their spiritual connection and an intimate relationship with nature that a lot of us don't have and probably will never have. But think back to when these tribes were the only people here living in harmony with the land and and the animals, no modern distractions like TV or cell phones, just them and the open wild surroundings. What they drew on their petroglyphs were what they directly observed from their environment. They lived in tents. Fish were their main source of nourishment. Their life was simple. And it's hard to imagine that they would create imaginary beings that didn't exist, at least to me. Their accounts are rooted in strong belief and their lived experiences. To me, there's something fantastic that we can learn from them. And the stories that they told were the interpretation of something that they saw. Whether or not it was an accurate interpretation, like saying a large fish is a sea monster, to me, that's synonymous. I know this isn't a sea, but for phrasing's sake, that when you don't have the words for it, mm-hmm. that makes And I will say that there are still several tribes that live along Flathead Lake. There's a reservation not too far away from there either. So to me, it makes sense because like you said, they have always been there and they have spoke of such a creature for hundreds of years, well before it was first documented in 1889. And Native Americans are known to have inscribed sketches of what appear to be rockets and UFOs on petroglyphs. So one might ask, how in the world did they come up with that in 1000 BC, time before the rocket technology was even thought about? The answer could lie in their creative interpretation of what they observed. Over generations, these interpretations may have evolved, added nuances or lost details, but the underlying essence stems from their experiences. Can I ask a question that I cannot believe I've never asked you before? Because hmm. I feel like you're more of an expert in this area than I am. Are S walkers, I don't want to say it whilst living out here in this area, are they cryptids or are they spirits? I'm no expert, but thank you for saying that. But to me, what I've run into is there's a couple different ways that they can be formed or perceived Yes, they're spirits, but there's also ones, for instance, like the medians that had looked at my cave videos where they had said they saw what they called a rake skinwalker. It has the ability to form into a manifested being of some sort to be able to walk the earth. And for example, they grabbed my chickens and took them. 
like I've said before, I think even Bigfoot is a supernatural being. It's not just flesh and blood. It has a spiritual sense to it. So it can come and go as it pleases. It can manifest into a physical form when it wants. It can travel through portals to get to and from easily and and be out of sight quick. I believe the dark shadows that I caught at my cabin when I lived there, the one by the shed and then the one that was near our bedroom window that just kind of floated across the yard in a very creepy, unnerving way. I believe that those were skinwalkers. Disturbing. Skinwalkers are outcasted members of a tribe. They had played in dark magic. They didn't follow the rules. They were killed or even when they died, their soul then became a skinwalker. They were banished as a skinwalker. That was their punishment. It wasn't to how you and I, if we pass away, our spirits are going to be able to rejoice in heaven and You're going to come through as a ball of light and we're going to go back to where we came. Exactly. Okay. I've always wondered that because I, at first, when I had first heard of them years and years ago, I had always thought that they were more cryptid like in nature. Not to say that I didn't believe in them. It just, for my interpretation, that's what it was. But then I watched a few investigations from Twin Paranormal and they supposedly interacted with one, but obviously you couldn't see it and it seemed more inhuman entity you didn't see that kind of sense you didn't see the skinwalker that they caught on camera i thought it was more of a i looked not it looked like non-corporeal the video that i'm thinking of was probably one of the best captures of a skinwalker that i've ever seen now just like any capture you don't know if it's faked or not but this definitely looked 100 percent real to me What I perceived to be a skinwalker was the same graininess as the other parts of the video. You can see something rise up in front of a tree. It's wearing beads, like of what an Indian would wear, a big necklace. And then it had hair that was sticking straight up, abnormal. It just was very interesting to me. And I suggest anyone look that up. Actually, I will look it up for you all and put it on our website or in the show notes. So that way you can see what we're talking about. It looked non-corporeal to me. I think it manifests when it wants to be seen. It can go back into a dark mass and travel and use the magnetic energy of the earth to move where it needs to be. Again, there's vortexes, there's portals. And before we wrap up, I want to share something fascinating since we're on this topic. Something I had come across on the Travel Channel. I'll link everything that we've discussed in today's episode in the show notes so you can check out our sources and further dive into our topics that we're discussing. So into the matter at hand, these people were conducting an investigation near Skinwalker Ranch. Now, the team was divided into three to cover more ground. There was one girl, she was with the cameraman, and they were stationed by a tree. And then there was another guy positioned at like the beginning of a field at the end of a cemetery. What makes this cemetery significant? So it is the same spot where people reported seeing an otherworldly portal open out of which emerged a black humanoid figure. 
and oh my God, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this, but the strange phenomena had intrigued this team, that story. So this is why that they decided to make their show and conduct some experiments, et cetera, et cetera. But things got really eerie when they heard growling noises. The guy at the beginning of the field, but the end of a cemetery. So it was like a line right there. He reported a strange sighting and what unfolded next, it's absolutely surreal. From a significant distance, they witnessed this black, massive apparition creeping through the cemetery. Now, the girl who was up on top of the hill, it seemed like she was two or three football fields away and it was still massive to her. It looked like from what the man down near that area had said, a colossal wolf, but morphing into a cloud of smoke and then reforming as a wolf and then smoke. Unfortunately, it couldn't be accurately discerned from their vantage point, but the unusual behavior, oh my gosh, just an unforgettable sight and just watching it. Through the TV, I even felt pure evil, like the intent was evil. I'm so intrigued. I need to watch it. Like I said, I'll find that episode for you. The man that was the main character in the show, he's pretty intriguing. He was a sheriff. He left his job over run-ins with UFOs and his department didn't appreciate his research because he was uncovering things that we all know the government prefers to stay hidden. But his dedication is so inspiring that his son left the military to support his dad's work. And the evidence that they've gathered is just mind boggling. They even caught a coyote on a trail cam, which only activates when it senses movement, but yet the coyote just appeared. The next day they tested it out. You can detect a truck coming from feet away and that camera turns on. So if this coyote came out of the bush or was walking down the road, the camera would have been able to capture that. But it all of a sudden, bloop, shows up right there in a well, split it was, second. Like it was like there. Like it was dropped there? Yes, like just appeared in a millimeter. That's insane. Yes, it was. And as I mentioned earlier, everything that we talk about on our episodes will be referenced in our show notes for you. That way you can dig a little deeper yourself and reach out to us with any feedback, comments, questions. I'm particularly interested in hearing from anyone who's had a brush with the Flathead Lake Monster or any cryptids for that matter. So don't hesitate to drop us a line at studiosinisterpod at gmail.com. We're all avid adventurers here, and your stories are safe with us. Whether it's your encounter with Bigfoot or any other creature, we'd love to hear about your experiences. Your story is a part of this journey, and we're eager to listen. The other thing, too, if you guys have theories, because I think we're pretty much stumped. Neither of us think it's specifically a sturgeon. But I guess it could be a fish. Just let us know what you think, because this one did really throw me for a loop. So send us an email. We'd love to hear from you guys. We would love to hear from our sinister seekers. So now is the time of the show where Don gets to do his quote for the day. Courtney had picked out this quote. Don, 
Take it away. All right, sinners. Brace yourselves for some existential water wisdom. The water is always deeper than what it reflects by our good friend Marty Rubin. Deep, right? Almost as deep as the abyss I crawled out of. We hope you like this story of the Flathead Lake Monster, a creature lurking beneath the waves, just like my long-lost sanity. It's deeper than the mysteries of Tinder bios and scarier than a blind date with a vampire. As for me, I'm contemplating a new venture, introducing Flossie, the undead thong. Because who says zombies can't have fashion sense? Catch you on the flip side, my sinners. All right, Sinister Seekers, we hope that you enjoyed the eerie tale that we spun for you today. Remember, we drop episodes like clockwork on the 1st, the 10th, and the 20th of every month. So don't miss out on your regular dose of macabre content and hit that follow button if you haven't already. We're haunting all the streaming platforms so you can catch us wherever you prefer. Connect with us on the dark corners of social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok. We're lurking around every corner. For those of you who crave more details, check out studiosessions.blog. It's an extension of our show, which features detailed show notes, links, audio and visual aids, and more. This year is all about sharing because sharing is caring. So help us reach new listeners by spreading the word. Share your favorite episode and let's build a community of sinister seekers. And yes, Patreon perks will be coming your way. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for exclusive content and goodies. Merch will drop soon too. Don the Zombie will have his own undead collection. But before we go, do us a solid Leave us a rating or review because crafting these epic episodes takes so much work and your love and feedback mean the world to Courtney and I. So until next time, Sinister Seekers, stay true. Stay you. Stay Stay sinister. sinister. August of 1969, brutal murders took place that would shock a nation. Murders committed by a cult leader and his devoted followers. On the next episode of Studio Sinister, we will venture into the dark world of Charles Manson, the deranged cult leader who commanded the devotion of his so-called family. We will uncover the rampage that left a trail of blood and terror across Los Angeles in the summer of 1969. Helter Skelter, revisiting the Manson family killings drops January 20th. Add Studio Sinister to your playlist to never miss an episode.